kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Dead and Buried, released October 9th, 1981. It was written by Ronald Shusett and Dan O'Bannon, based on stories by Jeff Millar and Alex Stern, from a novel by Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough. That's not really true. She did the novelization, so didn't come from her, but she wrote and she gets a credit for some reason on the IMDb page. It was directed by Gary Sherman and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. Jeff Millar and Alex Stern sold the story of Dead and Buried to producer Robert Fentress, who then employed Ronald Shusett and Dan O'Bannon, the co-creators of Ridley Scott's Alien, to flesh out a screenplay. Was it it based on a true story? Yes, this is a true story. (laughs) In truth, the script was mostly Shusett's work, though he did consult with O'Bannon for ideas which were quickly discarded. (laughs) (laughs) But the producers were keen on the opportunity to credit the creators of Alien regularly in advertising. In fact, the words are spoken twice in the trailer that we played at the end of our paternity review last week. From the creators of Alien, terror brought down to Earth. From the creators of Alien, dead and buried. The film was originally set to be produced by Guinness, yes, that Guinness, of the world records and beer fame, which had already funded a number of failed films and eventually reformed as PSO, Producers Sales Organization, and finally Aspen Productions, which is how the film is credited. The film costs between five and six million to produce, with 200,000 devoted entirely to the effects of makeup wizard Stan Winston. Unfortunately, it was a loser in the box office, though it has become a cult favorite since then. We start with a black and white photograph of a small town street and then dissolve to full color. We see old boats rotting on a beach and then the camera pans to a parking VW van. A man steps out and carries a camera and a tripod to the sand. He photographs a sandpiper, some old rusty buckets, and catches the bare feet of a woman in his viewfinder. That's a really good camera, isn't it? She asks his name and then begs him to let her guess. You look like a... um... Fred. Oh. <laughs> no, no. Let's see. Freddy. Okay. Yeah. He guesses she's Elisa, and she likes the name. I think the actress's name is actually Elisa, yeah. too. She asks if he might want to take her photo. After a few PG pictures, Freddy weirdly suggests that he might sell these photos to Playboy. It's like, this is not what they go for typically, but sure. Suddenly, she pops her top open, and he continues taking pictures until she asks to have sex right here on the beach. And right as he accepts her invitation, three more men appear and take away his camera before beating him with crowbars. Lisa makes sure to get a nice photo of the man before they begin. They wrap him to a post with a fishnet and take even more photos. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. Before dousing him in gasoline. A second woman walks up with a lit match and tosses it at the man, and we dissolve to a billboard on the side of a road at night that says Potter's Bluff, a new way of life. Firemen surround an overturned burning car, and one of them suggests the man in the wreck is deader than hell. Sheriff Dan Gillis radios to the station in search of coroner William G. Dobbs. The woman at the station, Betty, says that he's on his way, and Gillis suggests calling him again. The tow truck driver, Harry, played by Robert England, leans over the wreck and wonders out loud if the county might let him keep the car for salvage. 
They hear some big band music playing from a car radio as Dobbs approaches, played by Grandpa Joe himself, Jack Albertson. Sheriff Gillis tries to chastise him for his tardiness, but he shushes the man so he can hear his music. Dobbs, where the hell? Just a minute. And the angels sing. 1938. A little before my time, Dobbs. Dobbs leans down beside the driver's side of the car and reaches in to inspect the face of the charred corpse within, which lets out a sudden ragged scream, and the effect is phenomenal. Ah! It's so terrifying, the way his face does this. I had to watch it over and over and over again. <laughs> Insanely, the person hanging upside down in the shot is completely fabricated by Stan Winston, but modeled after the actor playing Freddy. I, I I wasn't sure if we were actually hearing him scream or if it was just like enough like a like a, a mood building like oh okay like the, his last moments were of him screaming and we were just kind of like hearing it yeah because it wouldn't sound like this if your whole trachea had been burned away yeah exactly but it's supposed to be actually coming from this corpse but it's a puppet that they put in an actual upside down right, car right. on fire and they shot it upside down and right side up because Stan Winston wasn't happy with the upside down effect. But this is the upside down shot, and he has since said that he's like, I rewatched it recently, and the upside down one looks great. I don't know why I was being such a jerk about it. It's really well done. I, you know, I feel like, especially at this time in, uh, yeah. in sort of uh, makeup uh, and practical effects, like you don't get this good of a copy of a real person and two hundred thousand isn't a lot of money for stan winston to be doing these effects with i mean we'll we'll cover a lot more stuff in the film but uh this was really impressive the next day the sheriff stops into a diner and takes a seat at a table with harry the tow truck driver beside barry corbin as phil but he's only in this one scene he doesn't show up anymore of the film the men pick on gillis for not learning the cause of the accident already apparently the victim of the accident is still alive enough that he's being kept at a hospital and overhearing their chat, the waitress expresses her shock about the accident. But when the camera tilts up, we see it's the woman with the match who set the guy on fire. And there's a huge musical sting yeah. of bwah. <laughs> she even seems to be wearing the same uniform she had on the beach. We dissolve back to the shore at night, and we hear a fisherman drunkenly singing as he stumbles and coughs in the fog. He sits down in a dark corner against a wall, and suddenly a camera flashes and the man's picture is taken. Hands burst through the wall on either side of his neck and begin choking him till another guy wanders up and starts slashing at his face with what looks like a harpoon, and then we fade to white on the man being stabbed in the gut with it. We return to picture under more big band music at the coroner's office. Dobbs sings to himself as he changes records. He dances alone toward a body on the slab when he is interrupted by his assistant Jimmy, who is just taking photos of the slaughtered fisherman. So Jimmy is one of the people who killed that fisherman, but there was right. a whole crowd of men in the room that did it together. Right, right. Jimmy says Sheriff Gillis is here to see him, but Dobbs suggests in fancier terms that Gillis is probably here to seize all the dank weed that Jimmy's been slinging across Potter's Bluff. Dobbs tries and fails to describe the intricacies of his work to Gillis, who seems to think he just throws a coat of makeup on the deceased. I've replaced missing eyeballs with sawdust and glued the lids together. I've used bent aluminum combs for dentures. I've used the back part of the scalp when there was no front part. And I folded one hand over wadded up newspapers when the other hand had no fingers. You find all this obscene, Sheriff? Do you know what is really obscene? Look at this. Look at the work I've done. This is an art, and I am the artist. 
What can you remember about a sealed box, a sealed casket? That is obscene. That is the death of memory. Gillis asks for Dobbs' thoughts on the crash. He wonders if the man may have been burned and then later placed in the car. Before Dobbs can answer, Betty from the station calls to report another body discovered at the boatyard, and he heads right there. After he hangs up, he tells Dobbs to meet him at the boatyard. After visiting the crime scene, Sheriff Gillis stops by a hotel and speaks with the proprietor, Ben. He learns that a man checked in yesterday and hasn't been seen for a while, but he left a suitcase here. The hotel owner worries aloud that a guest may have died because it will scare away future guests. The sheriff rifles through everything in the man's suitcase but can't find any way to identify him. I, I really like this character of the hotel proprietor. Yeah. Only because he's such a space cadet. Yeah. He just like wanders off into thought. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he's just like, are you, where are you going? Like while he's looking through the suitcase, he's like, oh, I just thought of something. And then he like is scared to even mention what he said, even though he thought of it out loud and and already announced the thought. But uh, he, he mentions that the sheriff's wife might be able to identify this man because uh, the sheriff's wife, Janet, was here yesterday to see him at the hotel. He goes home to check with her, and at first she mocks him for his jealousy before explaining that the man's name is George Lemoyne and he sells photography equipment. Janet is a bit shaken up to learn that the burnt man in the upside-down car was probably George, and she asks her husband for a hug and kiss. Sometime later, the sheriff speaks with the principal of the school his wife works at regarding the purchase of photographic equipment, and the principal denies any such transaction took place. So he's back to thinking that she cheated on him with this photography salesman. Right. Even though he did have photography equipment in his suitcase. We cut to Lemoyne in a full-body cast at the hospital. A hole has been left open in the cast around his head for his remaining eye. The sheriff and doctor step out of the room to talk in the hallway. While they speak, a nurse sneaks into the room with Lemoyne, and he quickly realizes it's the same woman from the beach. Hello, Freddy. The man starts to panic, and the woman pulls out a huge syringe and stabs it directly into his surviving eyeball. If you thought Freddy's first upside-down death was impressive, wait till you hear about this one. There's nobody in these bandages! It's a full dummy for the entire scene. Oh, really? The panicking face that you see through the mask yeah. is not real. There's oh. no person there. It's all being puppeted That's the whole time. That's pretty impressive. It's incredible. I mean, so basically you can see an eyeball and teeth. And you can see teeth. a row of teeth yeah. because the mouth is burned away. So right. he doesn't have lips anymore. Right. And that's all you can see. But yeah. the eyeball moves around. But the eye is moving around yeah. and it's panicking and it's yeah. it looks terrified. It looks legitimately terrified yeah. and there's nobody here. It's I just mean, a dummy. It's easier to look terrified when you have no eyelids. <laughs> You're always in a state of shock. I'm going to have to try it. Because the eyes were glass, the pupil stab was accomplished by drilling a small hole in the eye and then filming it in reverse with the nurse pulling the syringe out of the eye. Alarm bells ring immediately and the doctor and sheriff return to find him dead with the syringe still protruding from his eye. Sometime later at the cemetery, Dobbs chastises the sheriff for not identifying the victim sooner, although I thought they did and decided it was George Lemoyne. Dobbs thinks that if they'd been able to verify the man's name, that perhaps his family would have paid for mortician services. Instead, they're burying a sealed casket today, which Dobbs considers a waste. That night, Janet gets home and carries several boxes into the house. There's a shot here that people might not appreciate, they might not even notice, where she gets out of the car and walks up the steps and then opens the front door in front of the camera and walks into the house. But the camera always stays directly in front of her, so it moves up the steps with her and then she opens the door in front of the camera to get out. 
Typically, the effect of a camera passing through a door like this is achieved by literally handing it through the door's empty window frame, but in this case, there's clearly a glass window in the door. So instead, the filmmakers attached the door to the camera all the way down at the bottom of the stairs and walked with the camera and the door attached to it until she reaches into her purse to get the key out, and then they pop the door into the frame, what? drop the peg into the hinge, so that she can open the door normally and hey, move into the house. That's insane. I have to watch that shot again. It's crazy. I, I The first time I watched it, I didn't even notice that it was interesting right. at all. And the second time I watched it, I was like, wait a minute. Which Is the camera just zoomed in on her and zooming yeah, out the whole time? That's what I would assume. Yeah. And it's not. The, the camera is with her the whole time. And we're just looking through the glass of the door yeah. the whole time until she opens the door and moves into the house. In fact, as shot, all in one take, we were supposed to follow her back out of the house to the car, which required removing the door again, but the second half of the shot was slow enough that it was requested cut by the distributor. Wow. But they got it all in one take. That's amazing. She finds Sheriff Gillis sitting alone in the house in the dark. She asks what's wrong, and he tells her that the recent murders are bothering him, and she's weirdly dismissive of it. Oh my, my God, yeah, the murders. It's horrible. Well, listen, honey, I've got to go. <laughs> PTA. <laughs> She heads out to a PTA meeting, but promises to be back as soon as possible. And it seems very clear that she's saying, oh, I have a PTA meeting. Do you want to go? Because she knows he doesn't want to go, so he's not going to follow her wherever why, she goes. Why would he go? Yeah. <laughs> like, they, they, they don't have a kid that he's we a know parent. He is, he is not a parent, nor is he a teacher. He is apparently the sheriff. Eh? No. He is association? <laughs> <clears throat> Don't, don't <laughs> laugh at him, Richard. On her way out the door, she hands Sheriff Gillis a roll of undeveloped film in a can. She asks him to take it down to Ernie to get it processed. This seems needlessly yeah, why is she, threatening why, of why? her plan to give this to him instead of doing it yourself. Every, well, I mean, not to get into spoilers, but none of this movie makes sense yeah. when you no, go it doesn't, back. It doesn't make sense, but it's wonderful. Supposedly, it is some film that her students shot to teach themselves a narrative. Across town, a car pulls up and parks outside the Potter's Bluff Cafe, and a dad tells his family he's going inside to ask for directions. Inside, they speak with the pyromaniac waitress, who tells them how to get back to the highway, and when they ask about the gas station, a gas station attendant spins around on his bar stool to reveal that it's George Lemoyne, in the flesh, the photographer from the beach. After the family goes outside, the rest of the diner patrons all watch them leave through the windows. As they drive back to the highway, something runs across the street in front of them, and the father swerves off the road and hits a telephone pole. Their son in the back seat was not wearing a seatbelt and hits his head on the back of the front seat. Do you guys recall the last time a kid wasn't wearing their seatbelt and hit their head on the back of the front seat? Oh, I do remember that that, that happened. Was it uh, Burnt Offerings? No. Oh. That was a parked car. Was it the one with Robert Blake? Nope. Uh, okay. The whole movie stems on the child's injury. The child is injured and is going to be taken away from her parents. Uh, it, the juggler. It's I don't a remember. comedy. Oh, I, I, I know. I know. Improper channels. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Okay, thank you. They walk to a nearby house when they think they see a light on. They knock on the door and it opens without their help. The building doesn't seem to have power and nobody answers when they call out. As they continue exploring the house, we see shadows of people outside as they sneak past windows. What What is their plan? I get that they're looking for help, but. It's kind of like Monsters Inc. They need to terrify them as much as possible. <laughs> it's just like it's like we'll search. We'll ask for for help at this house. They open another door. It's clearly dark and empty, and no one is responding. 
Why would you continue to go into the house? Well, because you think there's people here that are hiding somewhere. <laughs> that's what that the, like the wife basically says like, oh, maybe they're all upstairs. Maybe they're all playing bingo in the bedroom closet. Let's explore the entire house. At the very least, if if I needed to get help and I, I saw that there was a house and I knocked on the door and it opened and it seemed like there was no one inside, I would look for a phone first. I wouldn't continue to look for people inside. I would right. try to find a phone. Yeah, to call the people inside. Call the number on the phone. Yeah. And, and say, then hang the up call really is quick. coming from inside the house. <laughs> yeah, but the line was busy. Because <laughs> you called Richard it. Richard almost spit his coffee out. <laughs> Someone must be on the phone over there. Over here. Apparently, dressing this building was really easy because it was actually abandoned, so everything already had cobwebs and dirt all over Perfect. it. Perfect. When he can't find a fuse box downstairs, the man, Ron, returns fuse to his family. Box. Yeah. He's looking for a fuse box. Again, not <laughs> what I would be thinking entering a house. I want to fix up this fixer-upper, <laughs> and then we'll get back on the road in our functional car still. Yeah, I would, I would understand getting out of the car if you needed help or if the car were disabled. But if the car still works, then you go, fuck, I hit a telephone pole. Yeah. I'll have to call my insurance people in the morning yeah. and then continue driving because your car well, still works. And I get it. Like, they, the kid might be hurt and they're going in and they're like, oh, maybe they have some ice. Like, I'm going right. to help this child immediately and then we're going to be okay. But as soon as you see the power's out, there's not going to be not ice gonna in the refrigerator. <laughs> but the phone could still work. Yeah. But it's not cold enough, unless it's a cold call. You're saying that the phone's making ice? When he can't find a fuse box downstairs, the man, Ron, returns to his family in the kitchen. Suddenly, the shadows outside the windows burst through into the building. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. What's going on here? I love that this is like their catchphrase before they murder groups of people. <laughs> the family tries to run away, but they're blocked at every turn by more and more people. They get back in the car and prepare to drive away as a crowd of maybe 15 or 20 people shamble toward them in silhouette. Suddenly, someone pops over the back seat and grabs their son, and they have to wrestle him back before they can get the car started again. As they drive away, one of the killers hangs onto the windshield and bashes against the glass. The kid in the car is actually played by twin brothers who are not available to film at night, so instead, the entire car and the entire house were draped in a huge tent with fans pumping in air so everyone could breathe. As a result, the entire sequence is 80-yard to avoid competing with the fans for volume. Wow. Eventually, they shake him off and leave town, and now we cut to the sheriff driving through fog and accidentally hitting someone. Unclear who. When he checks on the man, he is grabbed from behind by the man's disembodied arm, which is still moving and jammed in the grill of the truck. Also great effect. It's incredible. This is the first impossibly supernatural thing to happen so far in the film. Yeah. This arm wriggling on the grill is actually a prosthetic being really? puppeteered by an actress hiding inside the hood of the car. I was, There's no hand part here. I was it's, entirely certain that half of that arm was real. That's what the, I thought. And the rest of mm -hmm. it was a prosthetic extension. Yeah, that the cloth holding it to the grill was the seam. Yeah, between, exactly. But it's not. The whole thing is a prosthetic. And you can tell that Honest, when it, Honestly, okay, as impressive as it is, that seems like a little excessive when I think the easier route would have actually been using a real arm in this situation. Especially since, <laughs> so for the for the wider shot, when he gets grabbed at by the hand, that's a real hand. Yeah. But when they cut to the insert yeah. is when it's a prosthetic for the I mean, entire it looks, shot. It looks so good. But it's why, really great. But why do you not just literally put somebody behind that grill? I don't know. Well, I, I feel like Stan Winston probably has a couple of limbs- 
that are puppeteered. Oh, I ready was to say, go. yeah, he's not a paraplegic. No, no, but I'm I, I'm sure like in his like he's probably just got like some wriggly arms but, ready but, to go. But did he by this point in his career? Like I feel like this I don't know. Is, he's young here. This is early days. But this arm is so great for what is for Winston a shoestring budget. Like this is this is tight, and he's already made three completely fake people that looked great. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Wait, are we at three already? Yeah, well, the, we had the upside down guy, the person in the cast, and this arm that looked great. Well, okay. The arm, I wouldn't call a full person. Well, some of us aren't racist. Racist? Against the pieceist. Against L- limist? arms. Limist? Limist. <laughs> take it to the limist. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't take it to the limist. That person's limist. What? <laughs> the sheriff is knocked out and falls to the ground, and the man collects his arm from the grill. The sheriff chases the man to a nearby abandoned home. And he did all that single-handedly. Wow. How long were you? Did you write that one down? I did. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> he knocks him out single-handedly. Suddenly, something bursts out of the shadows, shoving his arm and causing him to fire his gun once through a window. He, When he, like, searches the rest of this warehouse, like, he just keeps looking around and going over. And then he finds, like, an open door in the back and then just sighs and shuts off his light and stops pursuing the subs- the suspect. Yeah, I would do that too, though, honestly. <laughs> I would have stopped when he picked up his arm off of my grill that was still wiggling around and ran away from me. I'd be like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Time. It's time for me to get some sleep. <laughs> Back at home later, the sheriff is having trouble finding his bullets and instead finds a book on witchcraft and voodooism. He reads out loud a circled passage in the book. In ancient folklore hands, they can only be made from persons dying by In another drawer, he finds a cool zigzaggy witch dagger, and he seems pretty upset about it and goes to talk to Janet. Janet! It's like, (laughs) why are you so mad? You know my parents were killed by witches! She claims she was going to give a witchcraft lecture at school, but he's not buying it. She is, though. (laughs) That's all true. (laughs) She asks if he remembered to drop off the film she handed him before the PTA meeting, but he forgot. Just like she said she did before she gave it to him. But she's still really mad at him for also forgetting. Right. She tosses him the box of bullets he's been looking for, which she says she found in a cabinet. Sheriff Gillis takes the film directly to Ernie to get it processed and stresses the importance that only he is allowed to pick it up. Gillis checks back in with Dobbs on his theory about George Lemoyne being burned before the car accident, and he seems to agree with the theory. Dobbs also asks if the county will pay for him to reconstruct the dead fisherman's face. Don't get greedy, Dobbs. Just seal him in a box and bury him. We cut to the beach where Robert England's Harry the Tow Truck Driver character is towing a car out of the surf. There's no bodies this time, but it looks like the car drove off a nearby bluff. Potentially the bluff for which the town is named. Potter's Bluff. I do really like the name of the town because... Right, because po- it's like Potter's, a Potter's it's Field. It's like a Potter's Field. Mm-hmm. And, but it's also a lie. And a Potter's Field is where you basically bury strangers right. who you can't identify. Yeah. So it's like... So it's like a place where you bury strangers and it's distrustful somehow. Yeah, it's good. It's great. The sheriff takes some flesh samples from what's left of the arm on his grill and he sends it off to be tested in a lab. The hotelier Ben rushes into the police station in a panic. Apparently he just saw George Lemoyne pumping gas at the gas station across the street. This is one of the things that's like, what? why is this happening? Because they're all <laughs> stars now in the dope show. What? Players on a stage. Sheriff Gillis tries to convince the man that he is mistaken, but he's insistent and demands the sheriff bring his wife for confirmation. You ask your wife. (laughs) We cut now to Mrs. Gillis's classroom where she teaches the kids about voodoo. Who do? You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. 
She feeds us a little exposition about zombie lore to help us understand what's happening in this film. Now, although that they are conventionally dead, they're capable of very closely imitating the living. There are even reports, not substantiated, but not discredited, of a tribe in central Peru whose residents included a great number of these walking dead were completely at the will of their master. She also claims that the so-called master has to keep the hearts of his victims hidden in order to retain power over them. Sheriff Gillis watches the whole monologue from the classroom door window, but never enters. On the way home together, Sheriff Gillis drives through the gas station, and when the resurrected George Lemoyne offers to pump their gas, Janet doesn't react as if she recognizes the man. We cut to the thumb of a hitchhiker on a country road, a pickup stops for her, and she runs to the yeah. passenger side door. Just to be clear. The thumb is connected the, the, to a person. Yeah, the thumb yeah. is connected to We've someone. had enough <laughs> severed parts in this film. You gotta specify. You never know. A hitchhiking digit. <laughs> like the toe that they find in Lake Placid? Yeah. Is this the man you saw killed? He seemed taller. <laughs> hey, you sure you want to ride with me? Now how do you know I'm not a dirty old man? <laughs> she says her name's Chance, and he offers to take her up the road to Potter's Bluff. He stops by what looks like a junkyard, but is actually a trailer park for boats. He parks and opens his glove compartment to retrieve a small camera. He leans back to take her picture from the driver's seat when she is taken by presumably the same murderous crowd as everyone else has been. But how do they know to meet him there? Because they're all of a hive mind. Actually, that could make sense. Smile. They take several more photos of her and then bash her head in with a rock. We hard cut to Sheriff Gillis finding her body on the road and then to Dobbs seeing it at the mortuary for the first time. We get a shot of the face and it's very bloodied and bruised. Somehow Dobbs decides that the best way to clean her up is to take off all of the flesh down to the skull (laughs) and start from scratch rebuilding her. But he makes comments about making people look better than they did in real life. Right. We see a time lapse of him adding layers back onto the face, painstakingly replicating all her features. What we're actually seeing here are Stan Winston's hands building a model of the woman's face. Last, we see the finished model and the hands open the eyelids to make room for a glass eye. It's a perfect match for the hitchhiker we saw, and Dobbs leans down to kiss the forehead of his masterpiece. And this one as well is a full model. Well, it sits up. Yeah, so when when Dobbs is... is Put, kissing and putting the finally final touches on it he he stands up and the camera follows him up and then when it and they pans pull back, the model out and then put the actress yeah. in oh my god isn't that insane it's insane because it was i was very closely watching I'm like this is a single shot this is th- that's nuts because there's a, just a gaping hole in her eyeball where right. he has to put the glass eye in. And, I'm and like, I was like, did they find an actress with well, that's one what eye? I was thinking. I'm like, they really probably just had to cast appropriately. I'm like, earlier they just found a guy that's like missing. Yeah, because this girl's only in like four movies. Yeah, like it would make sense if you just cast somebody who didn't have an eye, but also he pretty forcefully opens and shoves a glass eye in there. So yeah. I'm like, he probably wouldn't want to do that. But the way he sells it for an audience probably for a theater going audience would be the best because you can't rewind and be like wait a minute hold on yeah i gotta investigate this is you see him put the glass eye into the socket yeah and then that that's stan winston's hands putting in the socket and then he walks around into the center frame and and it's jack albertson entering frame in the same gloves so that you think he just did that and then he leans down and he kisses her forehead and then 
the the camera pans up to him while he says something about her and then pans back down to the body as he's walking away from the camera so he leaves the room and he walks out and closes the door behind him then a figure steps out of the darkness toward camera and places hands on the girl but this girl is motionless for so long that it doesn't seem necessary for the swap to have happened yeah because you're thinking this shot is going to end on a motionless girl so you're like obviously that's the same thing we saw there because why would they swap them out if she's not moving and and she's sitting there for so long that it gives you time to forget that the camera ever tilted up and back down yeah so then after this person sort of manhandles her head and then turns and walks away she sits up on the slab and turns and looks directly into camera for another musical sting but that model is it's perfect it's perfect and and he talks about how like the director was kind of getting tired of him because he was like no 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 this eyelash is wrong like he was like literally going through and fixing individual eyelashes like so perfectionist in his approach to this and again like it's hard to make a dummy look like a person yeah and and he did it on kind of a low budget for this yeah this is now the fourth replication of a human that is viable yeah it's crazy Screenwriter Ronald Shusett has said that this took 17 takes to pull off because they kept just barely not getting her swapped out in time. Yeah. I don't even know how they managed to do the swap out. Yeah. I like, mean, they just had to slide her out of the shot and then slide the actress in. But but there's but there's lights on her. So like right. movements of and, the... And he's wearing sh- glasses, so there's reflections. Yeah, exactly. And But, you know, moving the sheet would cause like the light to change. Right. Like, it, there's so many aspects to that change that you'd have to keep up. It's really, really impressive work. The lab work comes back on the flesh sample that Sheriff Gillis sent in, and the technician says the cells have been dead for at least four months. Later, the technician works alone in his lab and splashes what looks like acid on a microscope slide. Inspecting the sample closer, he is shocked by something and dials out on a rotary phone. He's called the station with an urgent message for Sheriff Gillis, but Betty says he's not in yet. Suddenly, the man is attacked from behind by the killing crew. The eyeball-stabbing nurse-slash-beach model suddenly leans in with a hose to spray acid up the man's nose, and his forehead bubbles as it eats away at the inside of his head. This is probably the worst-looking effect in the movie. Yeah. Winston wanted to do it all in one piece Uh so that you see the guy screaming as the hose goes in and then stuff is bubbling on top instead of this really bad prosthetic that they used. But since they didn't even shoot it with Winston, they just had to do this on their own without him Mm. for this shot. Which is just proves the point that it's hard to make someone look real when they're not real. The crowd take more pictures of the man as he dies. Sheriff Gillis returns to the station and is surprised to find Dobbs waiting for him. I'm I'm here to report a theft. Would somebody steal a body? Yes. He admits the hitchhiker's body was taken from the mortuary. He won't let the sheriff check the mortuary for clues because it could hurt his business if, if, if it comes out that he's been losing bodies. But... If someone has the body, yeah, they could find out real quick anyway if they just leave it in a parking lot somewhere. Gillis is going crazy with all these murders and his problems at home, and Dobbs agrees that Janet has been weird, even admitting that she visits the mortuary regularly when she assumed that he could advise her on voodoo, which he found insulting. Betty calls the station and tells Dan that she left a telex on his desk, and it sounds like a better-funded medical facility is ordering an exhumation of the body to assist in the identification of George Lemoyne. The sheriff heads over to Dobbs' mortuary and finds his assistant Jimmy painting his arm and then rushing out in a hurry. Gillis picks up the jar he was painting himself with and it's labeled Mortician's Makeup Lifelike Color Pale. 
Gillis heads to the cemetery and finds Sam the Gravedigger weeding the grave of George Lemoyne. The tombstone had a name and then itinerant, age 30 approximately. So I guess they never confirmed anything beyond the name for the man. He informs Sam that they'll have to dig this grave up, and the man is reluctant to comply until Gillis assures him he'll take full responsibility. Gillis heads back to the mortuary looking for Dobbs again but can't find him. And after he leaves, a drawer slides out of the wall and Dobbs sits up from under a blanket. Okay, so how does that happen? There probably has a button inside. I don't think that there's buttons inside to open and slide out the drawer. There because is on the nap drawer. Yeah. On the nap drawer? I get the impression that this is just what he does when he's he takes a nap. He goes and lays on a drawer. Morticians are weird people. <laughs> I'm just saying, like... The, the body in here is fully covered with a sheet and is not moving when the when the entire tray rolls out. So it's not like he stuck his arm out and like pulled himself out or pushed himself yeah. out. Like it just and we'll also have to come back to this with information from later in the story. Yeah, it just too. magically opens and yeah. rolls out. But I do think it's it's an automated thing that he just has this built-in function because he thinks it would be funny to sleep on this drawer, and so yeah. he naps in there. It's like Erie, Indiana, where they sleep in Tupperware. Right. Or it's like how a chef has to taste the meal that he's cooking. Like, you got to know what your drawers you gotta are like. Preserve, you got to preserve yourselves. You'd work less if you if you preserve yourselves. Yeah. Back at the grave, Sam is pulling the coffin out alone with ease. And once Gillis gets it wrenched open, he sees why. All that's in the box is a knot of t-shirts wrapped around Lemoyne's heart. We cut right to Gillis skidding into the gas station and taking several photos of the resurrected Lemoyne. At the police station... He asks Betty to send a telex to Rhode Island to request Dobbs' potential arrest record. But see, he wouldn't know what Lemoyne looked like. Who wouldn't? The sheriff. Because his face that, was burned off. This is a different thing. He 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 thinks Lemoyne looks like the gas station attendant. Because, but why? Because the hotel person told him it's the exact same guy. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I forgot about that. Which also doesn't make sense. Yes, it does. It make, all of it makes perfect sense. I'll answer all your questions at the end. Please hold your questions. I don't think it all makes sense. But. At the station, he asks Betty to send a telex to Rhode Island to request Dobbs' potential arrest record. He also gives her the Polaroid he just took of Lemoyne and suggests sending it to St. Louis PD to see if he's the missing person they've reported. Betty tells him that his film is ready to pick up with Ernie, and we cut right to him collecting it. After he hands over the film can, Ernie pulls a hand out of his pocket and it's all dried and crackly and he crunches his hand into a fist. Right. Okay. So this is implying that he's one of the mob that kills people, right? Yes. Right. Correct. He's dead. Why does he give him the film? Because he didn't watch it. But why would he assume that literally any film in this place, in this town, was safe? Because why would anyone give him this film and say, process this for me? I don't understand why the wife gave it to him when yeah. she's been driving around town this whole time. Yeah. And he's trying to solve murders. And she's like, can you do some errands for me while you solve your murders? I have a PTA meeting to get to. Also, they he had to send the film out to a facility to get it processed. Right. So... Presumably the people at the facility saw what's on that Exactly. Film. Like that, Potter's Bluff makes I mean, a lot of snuff films. <laughs> somebody did process this film, though. Yeah. <laughs> so they probably just thought it was a horror film. On his way out the door, Gillis crashes headlong into the lab tech, nicely put back together now. His face isn't all boiled off by acid. He asks the man if it's possible to resurrect corpses for some reason, even though he should know the answer, which is no. And the guy says, no, it's not possible. <laughs> they get a telex response from Rhode Island. 
Dobbs was let go from the Providence County morgue for improper use of bodies. <laughs> Censured and ejected. <laughs> sorry. Improper use of bodies is actually a like it's a legitimate a writ- crime. A written yeah. offense. <laughs> I'm sorry. What is the proper use of bodies? <laughs> They don't have a law for what they for what he did, so they just had to say improper use yeah. of, of body. Censured and ejected by Rhode Island Medical Society, 30 November 69. Now, Gillis runs home to check on his wife. He pulls a projector out of the closet, and the camera slow zooms to a lighting kit we've seen used at each of the kills so far during the photography stage. Gillis watches the film reel, and the camera POV follows someone into an old house, then watches through a window as two people have sex. The camera moves into the house, standing over the bed, and the woman under the man begins stabbing him in the back, just as the crowd of murderous townspeople slowly wander into the room. When the woman pushes the stabbed man off of her, we see that it's Janet, and the next shot is of Dobbs' smiling face, and we cut right to him screaming the mortician's name and kicking open the door to the office to confront him. Dobbs! What did you do to her, Dobbs? God damn it, what did you do to my wife? Good evening, Constable. In answer, Dobbs starts another film reel, and it's just a string out of all the murders the town has committed. I, this is like a crazy setup of film projectors that he have <laughs> yeah. going... It's like it's like that room in Jurassic Park where they're eating dinner, where there's just like walls of projectors yeah. going on and p- putting images on every single surface. Yeah, it's pretty great. It reminds me of uh, the Final Cut with Robin Williams. Okay, yeah, yeah. Where he, he's in charge of editing people's lives down to like take out all the terrible shit they did. Well, it's funny because uh, I was going to reference one hour photo. Oh, this is, yeah, very similar. <laughs> yeah. Look at them, Daniel. Look at my children. Oh, my God. He informs Sheriff Gillis that his wife died a long time ago, but that he was able to restore her beauty. How do you do it? Call it black magic. Call it a medical breakthrough. I'll take my secret to the grave. When Gillis asks why he does this, he admits that his masterpieces are more beautiful dead than alive, and they'll never age another day. Gillis aims his gun at Dobbs' face, but Dobbs explains that it's a futile gesture. You will try to kill me, Dan. Can't. You can only make me dead. Gillis still resists pulling the trigger, so Dobbs invites Janet in for extra motivation to kill him. Dobbs seems eager to die and join his children. A part of Janet's cheek falls off in Gillis's hand as he caresses her face. She won't stop talking about PTA meetings, though. He unloads several shots into his wife to shut her up before <laughs> she realizes the situation. In one of these startles from the gunfire, Melody Anderson reaches for her face. Apparently, it's because a squib under her dress blew a tiny fleck up at her, and it almost, like, cut her face for real. This whole section reminds me of, like, Death Becomes Her. Yep, which uh, is also Stan Winston. Yeah, yeah, it's just, like, yeah, the pieces falling off and, the and like, you know, being injured and not noticing. Yeah. Dan, I'm dead. Face buried. Dobbs spins Gillis around and gets the last couple of shots to the chest before he collapses to the floor. So, yes, Janet, I will. I will bury you. <laughs> <laughs> Dobbs, we're, we're all clear on this. Dobbs was not already dead. Correct. Correct. Dobbs was alive until now. Okay. So he's not sleeping on that slab because he's a corpse. 
he's sleeping on this lab because he's weird. <laughs> Are, were we sure that that was Dobbs in the drawer? In the drawer? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. for some reason, I was thinking it was the um, the guy that they just killed. The uh, uh, the doctor. No, the pharmacist. Not pharmacist guy. Like the film developer guy. The film developer guy doesn't get killed on on screen. Yeah, but he. You're talking about Ernest. Yeah, but he becomes he becomes one of them at oh, some point. Oh, I think it happened way before the movie starts. So he was like that the whole time. Yes, I think oh, a lot of the town have been okay, like this but, the whole time. Oh, he's just deteriorating because he hasn't gotten touched up lately. Right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Before he leaves, like he's he's shot Dobbs, and he's all alone, and the films are still playing. He throws his empty gun at yeah. at, at one of the screens, and you just hear glass shattering. I was like, that's not how projection screens work. <laughs> Gillis runs to the cemetery and screams his wife's name. He finds George Lemoyne's grave, but the name is scratched out and Janet is carved above it. <laughs> it's like, like she just did this? Cartoon yeah. Like she's crying out here and she's like, I want people to know I'm here, I guess. They're not going to put a new tombstone down. I'm not even going to put my last name. Just, no, just write Janet. Janet. <laughs> They'll know. They'll know which one. I mean, she's working with limited brain capacity right now. But she finds her crying in the hole and begging him to bury her. He slowly reaches down to take her hand. In the mortuary, Dobbs manages to get back on his feet and puts on another big band record because he's like, I gotta get my music going. The sheriff buries his wife one handful of dirt at a time while Dobbs applies makeup to his face and embalms himself back in the building, which is the coolest shot of the movie. Jack Albertson, like, just trying to put lipstick on his face and just all sweaty and scary with bloody chest and he's like jamming pipes into his chest to embalm himself. Is he alive at this point still? Yes. Yeah. He's yeah. alive until he starts to embalm himself. Well, he's not the one who turns them from dead to alive. He's not? Who does that? A different person. I don't know. The person who walks out of the shadows and touches their heads. Okay, but do we ever figure out who that is? We never specify it specifically in the film. I thought he was their master, but you're saying that somebody else is the master? He is the master because he's the one who keeps all the hearts. But he's not the one that does the magic? No, the the magic is done by the monsters themselves now. He has a secret that he took to his grave that explains the whole process. But I think he created a person first, probably the nurse girl slash beach babe, who is the person turning a lot of these people. Okay. And I think that his plan was, he kills me, you come back and you bring me back to life because I have an army of loyal people who can bring me back to life, and then I will perform my own embalming and make yeah. myself look nice again i mean that one guy has an entire army right yeah <laughs> he's just an army he's an army guy he's an arm we're talking about the arm <laughs> the arm from twin peaks no from potter's bluff dobbs lays down in a coffin and awaits whatever powers resurrect his creations the sheriff is visited by the rotting townspeople who place flowers on his wife's grave and pat him in consolation and he lists them off one by one yeah he and says, it's literally every person in town he says every single one of their names as if he's shocked one at a time yeah. that each one of them are a zombie if this was me in my hometown of camarillo where we live right now i would be like oh it's you uh another person <laughs> yeah oh uh, all my best friend oh and guy from the where do you work you look familiar <laughs> tin man and cowardly lion <laughs> and, and, no auntie M, you weren't there Everyone else was there. <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Richard just realized that. 
literally everybody. The wizard, that fucking old lady down the street who tried to kill my dog. <laughs> the dog. Everybody was there except for you, Auntie M. One person that takes care of me the most. Yeah. When my mom died in that hot air balloon fight. Hot air balloon fight. <laughs> I don't know how she died. Did they ever specify other than a vague reference to a hot air balloon fight? So t- it, was another, it was another tornado, actually. <laughs> and that deleted scene <laughs> that I made up. It seems now like everyone in town is one of these things. They take his photo here, and it seems like he's about to become their next victim, but he breaks out of the crowd and runs back to the mortuary. He's just been going back and forth from the cemetery to the mortuary for the last, like, six scenes. (laughs) (laughs) The film is still projecting, and Dobbs is already good as new standing below it. He points up to the picture to make sure Gillis doesn't miss a cameo. This time, he notices that when his wife pushes the man off of her, that the man is Sheriff Gillis. (laughs) He is the man in the film being killed, implying that even he is a zombie. He's so shocked by the sight that he jams his fingers tight against his eyes and then pulls them away, realizing they are falling apart in his hands. His hands are falling apart in his own hands. Come, Dan. Let me fix those for you. We freeze frame for the credits. I have questions. All right, let's hear them. (laughs) Time for Patrick to field questions and make excuses for the film. Okay. So, in theory, okay, so you're telling me that Dobbs is the master. Uh Uh-huh and because he keeps the hearts in the cemetery beside his home okay and we said that the master controls everyone Mm -hmm. why does he not control gillis he does control gillis why is gillis the only one who's clueless as to what's happening a lot of them are clueless it seemed like janet was clueless no because janet was doing the filming Janet's the one who's filming. Janet participates plenty. Sometimes she's participating and sometimes she's talking about PTA meetings while she's getting shot. Yeah, but you could could go to a PTA meeting and be a murderer. That's not true, actually. That's (laughs) that's a way they test that sometimes. Sometimes they'll hold massive PTA meetings. But, like, clearly, like, the diner lady seemed, like, in the know the whole time. Yeah, I, I, I think it's all depending on what Dobbs wants. But why would he? Why would he want the sheriff investigating any of this? It seems like a pain in his butt. No, I think he likes it. He, he even says at one point that he's he, that he enjoys this hunt with him. That he's playing this game with him. Ah, oh, Dan, I enjoy these little chess games with you. Perhaps you need a little more motivation. But it's a dangerous game because he's communicating with people outside of the town. How is it dangerous? What's the worst that could happen? Someone could kill him? No, somebody comes and investigates these murders yeah. that are repeatedly Then he'll happening. kill those people. He's invincible. It doesn't <laughs> matter. He has a hundred people that will come and res him. He's just wandering around with a hundred medics all the time. He can't die. Uh, the, the, this whole, yeah, I, I get that the movie needs to happen. Like This like, movie absolutely has, has to happen. happen. <laughs> I have a gun to your head. <laughs> it's just like, we need the story to happen. It's like, so everyone in this town is a murderer. Yeah. Including the sheriff. Yeah. Wait. No. Not including the sheriff. Everyone but the sheriff is a murderer. Everyone but the sheriff. But and everyone's think, pretending yeah, that there's Because Dobbs got caught once, and so he wants to practice by pulling off these schemes and seeing if a sheriff can figure it out. This is like some Groundhog Day like bullshit yeah because he probably wiped his brain at the end of this day and was like all right go back to normal and catch me again yeah i want to see how long it takes you to figure out what i'm doing interesting okay uh why are they filming everything because they need pictures of strangers faces for him to recreate them from 
So that's why they're taking photographs and filming everything is so that he has something to work with. But that also kind of filming them when they're like on fire and stuff. Though. Yeah. That's they don't need useful. to be doing it that far. <laughs> Maybe just for something to draw off to later. But um, <laughs> I think I do think that uh, he's giving himself away a little bit by recreating the hitchhiker so perfectly because you never saw her before she was killed. And when she came in, her face was completely smashed open with a rock. Right. And somehow you knew exactly what she looked like. Yeah. Who has photographs? The people who were there when she was killed. Those are the only people who could possibly Mm -hmm. have taken that picture of her. So he must be working with them if he has those photographs. That's what I'm saying. So it should have been suspicious to anyone else. The sheriff has the photographs? No. No, Dobbs Dobbs has the photographs. Yeah, because they're under his... Right, but, but he doesn't want point, people to know that right now. Yeah, so I'm just saying it's suspicious that he's that he able to recreate strangers perfectly. But nobody, but quote unquote, nobody that matters saw her, so nobody knows that he if recreated it's perfect her perfectly. Or not, then yeah. why does he bother to recreate it? Perfectly? Because he's he's making people beautiful again. That's the that's what he wants to do. Well, they should all look like this hitchhiker then, because she was the prettiest. Well, they of should the bunch. all look. They should all look like Janet, because that's who he thinks is the prettiest. Damn it, Janet. And and Jan- for some reason Janet like gets special treatment that that she can last for months without being yeah because she's up. the masterpiece because he because he worked on her the hardest because he cared the most so he's getting lazier as these years go on more like lazier what he's getting laid probably <laughs> why else do you make a bunch of well he dead did bodies? he did <laughs> mention like oh by the way. Only one of them is a sex zombie, so you're welcome for that. Yeah. <laughs> like, he did mention that here when, when uh, he's telling him that his wife has been dead for a long time. He's I mean, like, I gave back a little of their lives, but to Janet, I gave her fear and sex and love. I mean, so so presumably Janet just keeps teaching the same kids over and over and over. Oh, are all the kids all the zombies? Kids well, yeah, because they, you see the, the kid in the front of the class is the kid from the, the station wagon. I mean, that's kind of the same as real school, right? <laughs> same fucking lesson every day. Honestly, this movie feels like a Goosebumps book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so much better. But the the practical effects for all these bodies are so fucking cool. Yeah, that's all great. The movie is stupid, though. No, the movie's great. It just bothers you guys that- No, no, I thought the movie was fine. I found it very amusing. It's I... just a guy playing a single-player game. It's just Dobbs playing a single-player game, and everyone else is NPCs, and he programs them to do whatever he wants. And we're following it like it's a mystery, but it's not. Yeah. It's all solved already and it doesn't matter. There's yeah. no stakes to anything. Yeah. But that's fine because it's, it's fine. an excuse for these things to happen and it's so fucking cool. I think what bothers me from enjoying the movie more more than than you uh is I I I don't like horror. And while this movie is pretty light on the horror overall, um there's a couple of scenes where people are screaming a little too realistically for me like the upside down head the upside down head the the hitchhiker when she's like begging for her life and that, right. that 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 stuff gets under my skin yeah and and i and i think had that not been in there like like they just dragged her out of the car and there's just like a quick scream and a thumb i was like i probably would have been a little bit more okay but the prolonged screaming and people in pain that, that even the doctor like getting acid faced they spend so much time lingering yeah. on it as like this has gone past the point of being interesting and it has just made me uncomfortable. Yeah, that should have been cut tighter for a number of reasons. But again, that was the situation where the fi- even the filmmakers were like, we don't need to do this. Stan said we can't do this the way he yeah. wants to do it. And the 
the producing partners for the film, the, the third production company that stayed on long enough to get a credit were like, you need to show this kill and you need to show this kill. And they made them put the fisherman kill back in with mm-hmm. the harpoon stab and they made them put the acid brain yeah. thing back in. The, and those the, were two shots that didn't need to be in the movie. Yeah, the, the fisherman kill, completely fine with. But the, the, the other stuff was just like, is he, they're, they're just so upset about like the even the photographer he's like crying and he's he's freaking out like this is this this is where it stops being it being it becomes too horror yeah because the rest of the movie is really kind of cheesy and tongue-in-cheek and yeah i feel like there are comedic elements to it yeah and i guess the director wanted it gary sherman wanted it to be a dark comedy at the start and I was like, I feel like it kind of still is a dark comedy yeah. in a lot of ways. Well, when when he's shooting his wife and she's just like not reacting yeah. to it, um, I I think because there's so many great mo- chances for f- comedy there, just like it's like I can make you be stroganoff, blam, okay, or spaghetti, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, but the, it's just like th- those few elements like kept me from really enjoying the film, uh, despite the great effects. Yeah, I can't argue with the effects being great. They were. And I also love Jack Albertson playing yeah. a yeah. grandfatherly, like wonderful, gentle, kind person for his entire career. And then his very last feature film, he's this insane mortician murderer who's like embalming himself. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just so fucking crazy. But at the same time, like there's nothing inherently crazy about it. Like what he's doing is like, no, that's pretty cool. Like you are you are amazing and you deserve praise for what you've, you've discovered, whatever your trick is for bringing people back from the dead. Like you're clearly a mad genius and this is insane, but it's so fun. And Why he's, would you not play this as your yeah, last role? Yeah. And he's selling it a hundred percent. Like he's yeah. totally devoting himself to the role. He's not, he's not going like half-assed and he was like literally dying of cancer on set. Like, and he was, he survived long enough to attend the premiere um, but he was in a wheelchair. He had an oxygen tank. He needed an oxygen tank on set most of the time. But uh, but but it doesn't. He doesn't feel that frail in the movie. No, not at all. He's getting out of cars. He's walking around. He you know he's dragging himself along the floor and then standing up to change the record after he's been shot a couple times. Like there's there's physical parts to this yeah. that you wouldn't expect him in his I think late seventies to still be up for. But he's he just does such a great job in this movie. I really love it. I'll, yeah. give, I'll give it a thumbs up. It's a thumbs up from me for sure. Uh, it's a thumbs down for me. That's fair. It's just It's not your much. thing. Yeah. Um what are we doing letterboxed? So I have this I have this film at number 38 out of 137. Uh it's below Stripes but above Underground Aces. All right. Richard, um I need to move it cuz I thought this movie was uh I thought the movie that I put it next to was something else and I realized that it was not the right movie. So, so you're moving it up. Um, I am moving it up. Moving so on guys, up. You guys are you guys are lucky. Uh, I have it at 92, uh, which puts it below an eye for an eye, but above Modern Romance. <laughs> Patrick's favorite movie. What is fucking wrong with your list? Holy shit! Are you? Is your computer upside down? <clears throat> I have it at 19. Which is just under Zorro the Gay Blade and just above History of the World Part 1. Wow. This is one of our, our larger spreads here, Yeah, guys. I think so. Because <laughs> yours is exactly double mine at 38 from 19, and then his is more than double yours <laughs> further down. That's crazy. 
Our director here was Gary Sherman. After this, he writes and directs Poltergeist 3 and an episode of the Poltergeist TV series. He also has a writing credit on John Huston's Phobia from last season. The story was from Jeff Millar, not much else. Uh, story also from Alex Stern, again, not much else on IMDb. The writer here was Ronald Shusett, or Shusett. Uh, he has a story credit on Alien and character credits on all Alien sequels. He also has a story credit on Houston's Phobia. He wrote the screenplay for Steven Seagal's Above the Law, Schwarzenegger's Total Recall, and Free Jack. The other writer, Dan O'Bannon, didn't really contribute much to the script at all, but he was a writer on Dark Star, Alien, Phobia, Uncredited, and an original story credit, specifically Soft Landing, the car from space credit, in Heavy Metal earlier this season. He also wrote Blue Thunder, Life Force, and Invaders from Mars. The novel was Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, who she typically writes, um, I think, like, steamy vampire stuff usually, mm -hmm. but she was hired to do the novelization for this. Read the Ballantine book. Mm -hmm. The music here came from Joe Renzetti. So far on the show, he's composed Fatso, The Exterminator, and Under the Rainbow. Later, he composes Poltergeist 3 for Sherman, Child's Play, Frankenhooker, and he has a soundtrack credit for Ghostbusters 4 because it reuses the Child's Play theme. Which Child's Play? The doll Child's Play. Cinematographer Stephen Poster, he was a DP on Blood Beach before this. He's back after this for Big Top Pee Wee, Rocky Five. Donnie Darko and Southland Tales for Richard Kelly. Editor Alan Balsam, earlier he cut Loose Shoes, and he comes back to cut Revenge of the Nerds, Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, and Harlem Nights. James Farentino played Sheriff Dan Gillis. We saw him last as Richard Owens in The Final Countdown. He's also Captain Jensen in Bulletproof with Damon Wayans and Adam Sandler. Melody Anderson played Janet Gillis. We saw her last as Dale Arden in Flash Gordon. She's also Patricia Goodwin in Firewalker and Leah Roberts in Speed Zone. Is, is Speed Zone the one that was like uh, Cannibal Run 3? I don't know. Sort of. I can't remember. Jack Albertson played William G. Dobbs. He's best known as Grandpa Joe and Willy Wonka. We've also had him in The Fox and the Hound and Poseidon Adventure. He's the man on Chico and the Man, and this was his final film. Lisa Blount played Girl on the Beach slash Nurse Lisa. She was Catherine Danforth in Prince of Darkness and Lynette Pomeroy in An Officer and a Gentleman. Robert England played Harry. I just saw one of his early titles in Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive as the middle of a Hooper trilogy at the New Beverly. We also saw him recently on the show for Galaxy of Terror, but he's obviously best known as Tim Wexler from MacGyver episode Flame's End. Quite recently, he made an appearance as Victor Creel in the latest season of Stranger Things. And yes, he's, he's Freddy Krueger. Bill Quinn played Ernie. We saw him last as the judge in Bustin' Loose, and later he's McCoy's father in Star Trek V The Final Frontier. Michael Curry played Herman. He's a Wyoming officer in Any Which Way You Can. Later, he's Captain Searbacker in Firefox, Rafferty in Halloween 3, Magnuson in The Philadelphia Experiment, and Captain Donnelly in The Deadpool. Christopher Allport played George Lemoyne slash Freddy. He's Sam in Jack Frost 1 and 2. He actually died in an avalanche in the San Gabriel Mountains in 2008 at the age of 60. So the dad from Jack Frost 1 and 2 was killed by snow. Mm. Shit. Karma. What? I don't know. Those are good movies. <laughs> Joseph G. Medallis played Doctor. He's also Henry Parker in Sister Act, and we just had him as the deputy coroner in True Confessions. Macon McCallman played Ben. His first role was in Deliverance. We saw him as Dr. Atkins in The Incredible Shrinking Woman and as Tubby Wiederholt in Carbon Copy earlier this season. He's back later as Jerry Fuster in Rollover. Estelle Omens played Betty. She's Mrs. Herzog in Loving Couples and Mrs. Broach in Stir Crazy. 
Barry Corbin played Phil. We've seen him so far in Urban Cowboy, Stir Crazy in Any Which Way You Can. He's also Harv in Critters 2, and more recently he showed up for a three-part arc on Better Call Saul. Did you see that, Jess? Better Call Saul? The old man who doesn't want to sell his home in the desert? Yeah. That was Barry Corbin. Oh. He's been in a couple of Yellowstones as well. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. I love him so much. Linda Shusett played Waitress. Not as many credits, but she was also an associate producer on Free Jack. Ed Bakey played... In, in relation? relation? Shusett, yes. She's the wife of uh, Ronald Shusett, mm. the screenwriter. Ed Bakey played Fisherman. We saw him last as Skinny in The Baltimore Bullet. He's back next as Father Gallagher in Zapped, and he's also Pa Willis in The Philadelphia Experiment. Glenn Morshower played Jimmy. He has lots and lots of credits, but not many huge characters. He's usually just military personnel, though he does show up in Tango and Cash, Under Siege, In the Army Now, Star Trek Generations, Air Force One, Godzilla, The Core, The Island, and in all the first four Transformers films, he plays General Morshower. So that was like, Michael Bay worked with him enough times that he was like, you can have a character and you're going to be in all of these movies. He's also in X-Men First Class, Moneyball, and After Earth. Michael Pataki played Sam. He was Dennis in The Baby. We saw him last as Wilson in Airport 77, Monk in Raise the Titanic, Guglioni in Graduation Day, and he's back for Night Shift, Sweet 16, Remo Williams, Rocky 4, Halloween 4, and he has several voices on The Ren and Stimpy Show. Bill Couch Jr. played a town person. This was his only acting appearance. He's the son of famous stuntman Bill Couch, who plays another town person here. Bill Couch played a town person here. We've seen him so far as Durrell in The Final Countdown, Albert Feinberg in The First Deadly Sin, and most recently as Sprong in Earthbound. Sprong. Which I think is one of the alien characters, would be my guess. I think that's everything for Dead and Buried. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Full Moon High, which IMDb describes like so. A popular high school football player, who we've already seen play several characters in their mid to late 30s, becomes a (laughs) werewolf after a trip to Romania and struggles to come to terms with his new reality. We leave you now with a trailer for Full Moon High. Have I got a short lifeline or what? You carry the curse of the pentagram. I've always wanted to go to the pentagon. Pentagram, stupid. Oh. Oh, what shape is that? The mark of the wolf. Worse than having the mark of the wolf, Tony discovered, uh uh-oh, he was the wolf. Look, I got some dreaded disease only whispered about in the dark ages, okay? Is that all? A little penicillin clear it up just like that. Oh, no, no. Can't be that severe. I mean, you're running better than ever. Eating better than ever was more like it. Never again. I'll never do it again. But whenever the moon was full, he did do it again, and again, and again. Oh, God, what a bummer. Keep away from me! I'm your father! You creep! Tony Walker became a hunted man. The werewolf. Man. Wolf. Man. Werewolf. The commies turned my son into a wolf. I don't know how they did it. Might have been something in the water. Maybe it was something in the air. 
All right, calm yourself down now. This is simply a shot to put you to sleep so that when I skin you, it will not be unbelievably painful. Oh, shouldn't. Shouldn't. Shouldn't better. He shot the camera. Full Moon High. Starring Adam Arkin. Ed McMahon. Bill Kirkenbauer. Damond Wilson, Kenneth Mars, Louis Nye, Roz Kelly. Fleased or no fleas, I want to be your woman. Come back here, you big hairy legged coward! Look at all that hair. It's the walkie! Full moon high! I'm in trouble! Shoot up! Put me down! I said, put me down, not throw me down. It's not just another macho football movie. What is that, beer? Is that an alcoholic beverage? Here, explain that to your mother. Full Moon High. It's not just another sleazy high school movie. Full Moon High. It's not just another teenage werewolf movie. It's a bite out on the town. Did he go?